social ladies. All the 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 social ladies. Now put your phones up. Welcome to All the Social Ladies with CEO of Likeable Media, Carrie Kerpin. Because if you're social, then you really should be tweeting less. If you're social, then you really could be leading less. You can't let what people say it's so mysterious. Because you're social, you're a leader and you're serious. Now, Carrie Kerpin. Hi, everyone. I'm Carrie Kirpin, CEO of Likeable Media, and today is a very big day. It's a big day because we have Sonia Carter on the show. Sonia Carter leads digital and social media marketing at Mondelez International, building the digital impact of Mondelez brands across Europe. She is responsible for accelerating digital adoption and proficiency across 30 markets, as well as providing strategy for some of Europe's best-loved brands to drive results. A passionate advocate of integrated marketing, she believes creativity and ROI are equally inspiring. At the heart of this, and I can't wait to ask her about this, is her storytelling at scale strategy, which is helping Mondelez brands reach beyond their fans and influence tens of millions of consumers across their biggest digital platforms. I am so excited to talk to her today. Welcome, Sonia. <laughs> That's a big buildup. I'm just saying, it's to me, you are a big deal. And actually, I will tell you, when I first fell in love with you and became obsessed with all of your greatness, was this article in Marketing Week about uh, you spoke at something and you said social media isn't free. And I thought that that concept um, of really having to put the time and energy into it and, and really some of the stuff that you spoke about um, was really very impactful and just so smart. And so I said, I have to have her on the show. Go find her for me, please. <laughs> um, yeah, really, you're like a social media rock star to me, Sonia. So welcome. Oh, thank you. Welcome. Can, I, can we do this every morning? I just need you okay. as, as my morning call. This is what we'll do. Every morning I will call you and say, this is why you're amazing. <laughs> we can do it. I could send you little emails. It would be great. So, so for others to realize, I know you won't say how amazing you are, but for others to realize how amazing you are, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the story of your career, how you came to be in this position and get into social, and we all want to know. Okay. It's a little bit of a roundabout route because I'm, uh, I'm quite old, I have to admit. That's, <laughs> I'm start, starting out strong with saying that. So I've been in digital for uh, about 14 or 15 years, okay. and uh, digital was a very different place back then. So I actually had uh, these grand dreams of being um, a director of music videos and, and TV ads. And it was a hugely male-dominated uh, world. Mm -hmm. And um, I found that I, I, I didn't like schmoozing nearly enough to advance my career. And I, I guess I had just got into using the internet with, you know, I got some CD for a free dial-up and I started using the internet <laughs> and I started seeing Flash websites. I don't even know if they still make Flash websites, but I was like, wow, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Now, yeah. if I had been born 10 years before, I would have been making music videos for Duran Duran and I would have lived very happily doing that. And I missed that boat and I figured that maybe this was the new boat, that this sort of internet thing could be... Um, you know, a place of great creativity. And I went on a HTML and JavaScript coding course for a few weeks. 
um, and taught myself how to use uh, Flash and, and some other products. And actually, I set myself up as a freelance web designer, and, and that was really where it started. And it, it, it's a, bit, a beginning to a career which you just wouldn't do it that way now. Um, but, um, you know, it was very, very different in those days, and I did that for a while and actually was very lucky to work with some um, some great fashion clients. I lived in Australia for a few years where I, I worked with some great high street fashion brands there, massively punching above my weight. Those those kind of brands <laughs> would be working with very slick agencies in this day and age. Um, and then um, worked in a very large advertising agency in Sydney that um, was probably pretty far ahead of its time. It was a big above-the-line agency, but, but had a, a sort of 50-person digital agency on one floor which had a mixture of clients from the above-the-line agency as well as, as its own. And so I learned a lot about working with creative teams and technical teams and mm-hmm. kind of being the bridge between the two. Um, and I guess my background had, had given me a good ability to, to flip between those two because when I was working for myself, I'd had to do both of those those jobs to some degree. Right. Um, and then when I came back to the to the UK, actually it was it was a strange place uh, in digital because um, the the really fun brands just weren't investing in in digital people at that time. Yes. Um, so the industries that were investing in digital people were kind of big B two B companies like IBM and Microsoft clearly had massive investment in it. Those didn't you know it wasn't kind of my bag at that time. And I went and worked for a big construction company, of all things. Wow. This I, I didn't know. I love I this kind of, At that time, um, I think because I hadn't come from a, from a sort of pure marketing background, I didn't quite have the, um, that sort of chasing the really big brands at the time. I was sort of chasing the great job. And I thought, well, I don't really care who the brand is. I, I want to work for someone who's really bought into the idea of doing great things online. And, and, and they were. Um, well, they had great ambitions. Um, I think the reality was actually very, very hard because, it, you know, um, after a while everyone realized that we're not really sure what all of this great marketing and communications is doing for our brand. It's not necessarily aligned with how we make our money. Right. The, the, the way that we, the, the decisions are made and people decide to use us is not through, through digital. Um, but lucky for me, they had launched a consumer-facing part of the business. It was actually building houses. I'm going to get to the end of this very quickly because it's very uh, not quite as exciting as stuff. It's not true. I'm fascinated. So don't say um, such a thing. It's just a reflection on what the industry was like. I mean, genuinely great digital jobs were few and far between. So um, I worked for them um, developing a proposition that was um, they they built houses and they wanted to sell them directly to to the to the public. I don't know if that's a foreign concept in in the states, but there'd be a few really big players in those that market here, and it did in- incredibly well. That project was very successful. Mm. The website and and all of the other stuff along with it was was very very successful. And then um, that led me to my next move, which was into financial services, which was the next industry that was really investing heavily in digital talent because they were very quick to see um, the the link between um, digital and um, customer service and reputation management and, um, you know, moving servicing to uh, to the online space and selling online, so basically cutting out the middleman um, and increasing their their revenue. So that was a really exciting 
place to be. I was in financial services when we had the big crash. Wow. That was also very interesting um, because it shifted from, you know, how can we use digital to, to really sell to how can we use digital to manage our reputation yeah. and to build advocacy and, and also internally. So how can we use it to foster a sort of knowledge, knowledge culture internally and use our employees as, as advocates on social media? So it was a really, really interesting time because there was, um, even though it's not that long ago, I mean, we're talking sort of six years ago now, it feels like another world in terms of, you know, when I think about what I actually knew about the digital environment and how many people I knew in the industry, it, it's just another age. And, um, you know, at that time, if you had digital in your job title, you were literally would have um, about 50,000 strings to your bow because you would be involved in, in PR, you would be involved in service, you would be involved in listening you know, all the stuff where now you would have people who were specialists in those areas. I, yes. I, I had to sort of have a, a little bit of my time looking over all of those things, which was wow. great, but tiring. Yes, I'm sure. But <laughs> I'm sure it gave you a massive amount of experience. Yes, yes. yeah. But but um, a lot of running around and, and kind of moving by, moving by inches. But, you know, I was very lucky to work for a company that had just bought um, the, the UK's first, online only insurance company ah. which again you I mean you can't imagine that there was a world where we couldn't just go and buy our car insurance and our house insurance online right um, uh, that that didn't exist until this this company sort of uh, had launched and so and they had a really really great culture of very agile development both in their technical development and just in their the way that they thought they were very much like a startup. So they were excited, an exciting company to be around, and they they passionately believed in in marketing and and having digital at the heart of their business. So I was very lucky to join at the time where they had um, acquired that business, um, and were also looking at ways to use um, social media, uh, you know, in an industry where you can't actually tell people how great you are um, because right. of uh, you're massively restricted by regulations. It right. Was, very interesting to have to work around that um, and getting people to advocate for us on social. Um, and from there, I made the move to Cadbury. And um, Cadbury is um, a very, very, very famous brand in, in the UK, uh, been making chocolate for well over 100 years. Um, it's the, the biggest brand in the UK, one of the, the most famous brands in the, in the world. Um, I'm sorry you don't get quite such nice versions of our chocolate in, in the States. Well, um, Sonia, you I'll tell you. North of the border to Canada where you get fantastic Cadbury chocolate. I'm sure I need that, but I will tell you that I do have a borderline unhealthy addiction to the Cadbury cream egg. <laughs> so there, there is a, a serious love, like to the point when I was a child, like I used to wait for the egg. I knew exactly when it was coming out and I would be obsessed. And then it was, do you eat when you break and you just bite into the chocolate? And then do you eat the yellow part first or do you eat the white part? I, I mean, I could talk about this all day, so don't worry. Well, you know, it's interesting because I was talking about cream egg to um, someone else from the States last week. Yep. And it seems that they have... Uh, the, the message that it's only available for a short period of time seems to be 
much more well known there than yeah. than in the UK, where yeah. actually we've uh, you know that's something that they a message that they need to land quite quite heavily that they're yeah. only available between January the first and Easter. You the bet. They've done a great job of that in the states. You bet. Yes. There's a sense of urgency. I mean, we need it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very specific times. Okay, so you got over to Cadbury, which you must have been yes. so excited about because that's yes. such a fun, hugely, exciting, hugely yeah. excited. Yep. Um, uh, I, I have to preface, I, I, somebody asked me the other day, what's been the biggest challenge you've had to overcome in your career? And I really think that the honest answer is that uh, I broke up with my boyfriend the same week that I started work at Cadbury, and you should never, ever have a breakup the same week that you this start is... at a chocolate company. That's <laughs> all I'm saying. That's, that's the big, definitely <laughs> the biggest career challenge that's amazing advice. Do you hear that, all the social ladies? <laughs> Never, ever break up with your boyfriend right before starting a job with a chocolate company. Great yeah, advice from Sonia Carter. Yeah. I love Very it. Very dangerous. I love it. Um, so I, I started there at the beginning of 2011, and Cabri was one of the sponsors of the London 2012 Olympics. And they had um, some absolutely wonderful ambitions for that sponsorship, way beyond uh, way beyond marketing. So it was going to touch every part of the of the business, and digital had very much been put at the at the centre of that. And there was a, a legacy team there, but they were quite um, um, quite tactical, I guess, um, in very much you know supporting the brand teams to keep their website updated and to to build apps and that. But there was what what they wanted me to come in and do was to put a strategic lens over that and really um, uh, make sure that we were fully leveraging the digital uh, digital channel and to be really at the forefront of innovation and um, and there was a lot of support for it throughout absolutely throughout the business that we are also going to use this program to do a huge amount of learning that we can then apply to the rest of the business. Um, and um, and at that time, um, Kraft uh, had bought the brought, bought Cadbury, and that brought a bigger dimension because the the the, the possibility for us to um, disseminate learnings became even greater. Right. So we became a much bigger business, and and we could disseminate the learnings globally. So there was a lot of uh, interest in in that whole program, and we did some really really wonderful things there. Um, you know the, the one of the, the business reasons for Cadbury sponsoring the Olympics was as a way of um, connecting with a younger a younger audience. Yes. And, um, you know, very simplistically, it was thought, well, digital is, is the way to do that. Of course, now we know that it's, we know it's not just young people. Right, it's digital, everybody. At that time, that was kind of, you know, it made sense. So those people were uh, consuming less traditional media. Um, so there was a broad understanding that we needed to invest in, in uh, various digital activations to reconnect with those people. And um, and we did that very very successfully. Uh, we built up some really really huge social followings, um, and were very quick to adopt um, the the paid offerings, uh, particularly of, of Facebook and Twitter, which yes. happened to launch just before the games themselves. So by the time the games came along, we were just absolutely we were just in the perfect position to take advantage of those of those changes. Um, and we did a huge amount of innovation with mobile. We ran our first hackathons, you know, getting 100 developers in a room and giving them a, a brilliant brief and seeing what could be developed um, within about a sort of 36-hour 
period um, all stuck in a basement of uh, Google has a separate um, space in, in the east of London called Google Campus where mm. um, startups can go and use use office space and, and um, mix with like-minded people. And they were very gracious and gave us their space for a couple of days. So that was a really, really interesting experience. So that the, the whole program gave us we had license to really, really experiment, kind of this in, informed experimentation. We all, we were very, very clear on what the business objectives were, but we were allowed flexibility to t- test and learn um, different uh, new, you know, new media and new technology uh, that was going to enable us to bring the games to, to more and more people. Um, and I guess as a result of that and disseminating those those learnings across the business, my, my role increased, so I took on a European responsibility. And then um, so after the, the over the last sort of year and a half, well, it's nearly, I guess, two years now, it's been two years since the Olympics, um, my role has shifted, so it looks after um, the whole of Europe. And uh, that ne- necessarily means that, again, it's, it's sort of another higher level uh, yeah. looking at how we can really leverage digital across the whole European business and because of the changes in in digital marketing, I now sit within the media function, um, and that has um, I have to say, you know, when that when that first happened, I wasn't quite sure if that was the right fit, but it has been absolutely brilliant because it's enabled me to start having this message about using digital for scale, which is something that um, I hadn't previously been able to do quite so successfully. And then that leads on to the the storytelling at scale strategy, which you mentioned. I think you really gave a good history. And it's a very interesting story because you went across a a variety of different industries and you had some freelance and some agency work in there. And so I actually I have a lot of questions about that. But first, let's go into a little bit of your current role, how you talked about social and digital as a broadcast channel. And and a lot of what you talk about is that the ability to do this at scale. A lot of that, I assume, comes with social advertising. Can you talk about that a little bit about how you um, ended up in the media department and how you how you then use social advertising to create scale? So, I mean, we're very lucky that, you know, we have brands like Cadbury in Philadelphia and, of course, Oreo with huge, huge, huge uh, fan bases across, across a number of, of social platforms. And, um, you know, the thinking previously had absolutely been that the value in those platforms was about advocacy and um, earned media. And and that was absolutely right because that's the way that those media those media networks were were set up and that was in line with people's behaviour. Once once those networks started introducing products that allowed us to speak to uh, beyond our fans and obviously uh, Facebook in particular made adjustments to their algorithm so our organic reach was you know far far tinier right. than it had right, been right. Uh, five five years or so uh, before that. We really had to look at how do we take advantage of this? So whilst, of course, it's psychologically, it's quite an adjustment yes. to think I now have to pay to reach these people that I probably bought two or three right, years ago. Right, to begin with, right. Uh, when, that was, when, you know, the only advertising we could really do was down the right-hand shoulder of Facebook and we could buy fans. Um, you know, that, that stung and uh, it took a while to get over that, but... but I really firmly believe that the the fact that we can now talk to tens of millions of people who aren't necessarily um, haven't necessarily clicked like to our brand, we can be really targeted around who we can who we're talking to that's 
absolutely in line with who we need to get our message to. That, to me, is, it outweighs all of the... Uh, the uh, disappointment I and might have about yeah. my, the algorithm restricting my reach. And so with, with FMCG, and I have I always preface this, that this isn't necessarily the right um, approach to take for other industries, but if you're in FMCG or CPG, as you guys call it, um, you know, you need to talk to millions and millions of people um, on a frequent basis because that's how people buy our products. It'd be different if it was a car and you take a year to decide which one it is and you have to get really, really involved in that decision. When you're talking about impulse purchases, um, you know, advertisers need to get it in front of their target audience uh, as often as possible. And so that, that wasn't quite uh, in line with how we were using social, which right. was talking to a small number of very, very loyal people uh, and getting them to buy even more products or trying to get them to talk to, to, to people and advocate for us. When you really looked at the numbers, it didn't make sense. Totally. So, you know, if you're, if you're Oreo and you need to, to um, sell in the, in the hundreds of millions, if not the billions of, of uh, products every year, you know, talking to even a million people is, is not, doesn't actually add up. So, um, we actually, with Cream Egg uh, in the UK, um, looked at, uh, we decided to, to really take the plunge with Facebook advertising in particular because we had a campaign which was specifically aimed at 16 to 24-year-olds and the, all of the research came back from, our, from PhD, our media partners, that this particular demographic was just simply not consuming TV in, in uh, great enough numbers for us, for, that, for TV to really be our only channel. We needed to spread our media investment uh, widely, and Facebook was uh, the, uh, the smartest channel for us to use if we were going to connect with them. And so we made a significant ad, uh, um, investment in Facebook advertising. Mm -hmm. We also took a very structured approach to the whole program. So it was a very informed choice. There was a lot of stakeholder management because it was quite a shift in, in behavior. Um, and getting all of the, the media team, the creative team, the digital team, obviously the brand team, everybody uh, involved. And uh, very importantly, to make sure that consumer insights were involved so that we could measure all of this as we went and we could know what the, what the impact was of uh, making such a, um, a shift in our investment. And um, we really approached that twofold. So it was interesting at the beginning you said about sort of approaching social as broadcast, and we have to be really careful about that because people assume that um, as soon as we say broadcast, right. that it's necessarily a bit kind of just pushing it. And we're, there's a little bit of what was great about digital being lost in that, you know, yes. what digital offers is, is yes. interaction. Yep. Um, uh, and an engagement with your consumers. So what we what we try to do is, is just talk about the fact that it's digital creative excellence. And sometimes that might be a great video which doesn't require any interaction. And sometimes it might be a, a far more um, in-depth brand experience which might involve something in the real world that's very involved with a small number of people, but someone captures that uh, and posts it on Instagram and we boost it or, or it's uh, a video that we boost on, on YouTube. So um, it's, it's trying to take the best of broadcast, but make sure that that's definitely rooted in all that's wonderful about, about digital. So 
we took the approach with Cream Egg of just really, really being laser-focused on brilliant, brilliant quality creative. Yep. So every single post had to um, be focused on the business objective. So the digital agency was aware that they needed to get 16 to 24-year-olds to buy uh, an, you know, at least one egg during the season. They needed to get across the message that the, there was a sense of urgency and that the, the Cream Egg season is, is limited. And they needed to get across that you know, cream eggs are fun and a great product and a bit cheeky. Um, the the creative was fantastic above the line as well. It was about have a fling with a cream egg, so basically have a bit of a holiday romance with an egg. So there was a lot of scope to be very creative, and um, and it was a really group approach with Facebook PhD uh, and the creative agency Fallon and the digital agency Elvis all working together on actually on seventy five posts in all. Um, and paying very close attention to that creative and then really looking at how to best maximize that media investment. So putting things live, watching what worked organically, and then boosting the most successful posts. And when we started seeing the numbers coming back, you know, it was just astonishing to me. And these are UK, so obviously we're a tiny country compared right. to the US, but we were looking at a post that, for example, would have an organic reach of 100,000 people, we would then boost it with media, and all of a sudden that was going to 5 million people. Yep. And um, this was, and, and we are not talking about you know, huge amounts of investment. So it was just wonderful seeing things coming back with millions, um, millions of, impre- of, of reach rather than, rather than hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands. And when we did the final wrap-up of the, of the campaign, we had... And done um, some Ipsos tracking on um, purchase consideration. And when that came back, you know, 18% of the people surveyed um, specifically pulled out Facebook as being what had influenced their purchase consideration as opposed to 21% who'd said television. So for Facebook, you know, to be really so close to TV was, was really, you know, had a, a huge impact on the business because it was... Ipsos tracking, which is something that we use and, and everyone trusts and it's very reliable, um, it wasn't just, you know, a, a study that Facebook had done, right. you know, it was someone that had a vested interest. Right. Um, it was a, as a completely impartial piece of research. So, um, you know, it was a very powerful pilot and that has formed the basis of this storytelling at scale approach, which is you know, really boiled down to two concepts, is to approach digital creative with exactly the same robustness and um, expectation as you would with above the line and then make sure it gets in front of as many of the right people as possible that we are about scale you know we're a big business that needs to sell many products and you need to talk to lots of people that's it you know it's as simple as that but it takes quite a long time to actually get get that across you you know it Um, makes total sense Sonia because it's what you said about the crux of broadcast versus the concept of community and all of the things that are wonderful about social. The storytelling at scale piece makes complete sense because you're adding value to the user by entertaining them or doing some kind of killer creative, um, and therefore you're not just inundating them. So I I love the thoughtfulness with which you approach that. I think that 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 makes complete sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, And it's actually helped us to start um, looking at you know, 
what we need to do from a campaign perspective and that excellence there and community management and always on and how do we make that excellence and all the different sort of flavors of communication that we have and make sure that we have the right partners working with us that we're investing in it appropriately. Um, so it's it's really simplified things because I, I, I firmly believe that one of the biggest uh, challenges that, that we have in marketing is is just distraction. Yes. And, um, you know, so we're really trying to say, you know, it's, it's a value at Mondelez across the board about keeping things simple. Um, so trying to keep these principles as simple as possible, that it's about creative excellence, getting in front of many people and just, you know, repeating that message. Um, and, um, you know, we've been very, very successful in, in landing that message. And, in fact, you know, are able to now go around and, and improve again and give um, give even more support to the brands and to the partners around what digital creative excellence is because, you know, every few months the the game changes, you know, and, and uh, just as we think we know things, you know, yep. someone comes along and blows changes out it up. the water or people's behavior changes yep. quite drastically and we have to adapt to that. Right. So we're constantly evolving that that strategy, and and uh, and I certainly, you know, my my main job is to make sure that all of our partners and all of our our marketers have all of the information and tools uh, at their disposal to to just do the best job that they possibly can. And your role in growing into into heading up digital and social for Europe, how how are you able to manage that from a local and cultural perspective? Is that difficult to do? Do you have to do it, you know, different strategies by country, or is it just the overarching theory of storytelling at scale? Um, tell me a little bit about that. Well, the the, the central theory is is completely applicable to all of the markets mm-hmm. in Europe. Um, part of it, part of the framework is is platform selection, and that and that will be where you'll see differences across across the European market. So in the UK, uh, Twitter is very important. Um, in other markets, it really culturally they just don't seem to have adopted it yet. It's it's very very interesting um, as uh, Twitter adoption <laughs> now wow. reflects. It reflects uh, culture and, and willingness to, to share and be open and um, being able to be succinct enough to talk in 140 characters as well, which is a real challenge for, was a real challenge for Germans who have a very, a lot of letters in their words. Mm. Um, and, you know, for example, in Scandinavia, where um, up until quite recently, you know, they're quite, quite, um, you know, the whole sort of being ridiculously sharing every last <laughs> uh, detail of your life is quite anathema to them. So yes. um, Twitter has developed slightly differently, and in some markets they had their own um, their own social network. So in Spain they had one called Twenty, and you know we also we had to be make sure that that's where we have to localize it. Is you know you need to use the platforms that make the most sense for your market wow. and for your for your target. But fundamentally the principle is absolutely the same. I mean that there's not much argument against against that, you know. Um, but when it comes down to a brand level, of course, the messaging and the type of creative that really works locally definitely varies, definitely. Mm. Um, so you can, see, you can see differences if you take a brand like Philadelphia, which is doing really, really fantastic stuff on, on, uh, across all social platforms. Um, they have massively evolved over, over the last year and have um, gone to great lengths to, to have 
uh, creative workshops in each of their really big markets. So it's very different in Italy to uh, to Germany to the UK um, because you know the the ritual of of eating. Um, soft cheese is different in all of those you markets. Bet. So you bet. in Germany, it's a breakfast thing, and in Italy, it's it's quite indulgent and it's about having big family gatherings. Um, in the UK, it might be about making lunches delicious. Mm. So the tone has to be slightly different, but the, the the fundamental creative ambition is consistent. So the the quality has improved across all of those markets, but the messaging will be slightly slightly different, and they may use platforms slightly differently. Got it. So you said something earlier uh, that I loved. You said when you were freelancing, you said you were punching above your weight. And I thought that that was such a great example about kind of taking risks and, you know, taking on and and having the confidence to go after stuff. Can you, if you were giving advice uh, to young women who are starting in their careers about punching above their weight, about going after things and really um, going to take on, you know, whether it's the latest client or grow in their company, how would you recommend that they proceed in order to really grow and get to the level of career that you have and, and that they may dream of having? Oh, goodness, that is a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you you really, you've covered it, actually, in a lot of what you said. Your whole career story covered it, too, is you jumped from to different industries and different types, and you experimented. I thought that that was really great advice, too, but mm. I'd, I'd love to hear about it. How did yeah, you do I, it, like, when you were I freelancing? Mean, what I have observed, and this is, and this is something that, um, you know, self-belief even if you have to fake it sometimes. Yep. Um, you know, people, especially in digital, where a lot of the people that you're dealing with, um, they really want to have confidence in what, you're, in what you're saying. You know, they just want someone to give them the solution. They want to be able to, to trust you uh, and know that you're steering them in the right direction because, you know, it's very easy to go in the wrong direction. Yep. And I think, you know, being taking a breath and being really adult and authentic and giving people great advice and believing in yourself, it sounds so cheesy, but that's ultimately what I observe in, you know, I think it's inherently, um, you know, we live in a patriarchy and men just get given that as a birthright. You Unfortunately, bet. women have to learn to do it. You bet. And I really see, um, you know, that it's incredibly inspiring when I see, you know, women who are who are very able to do that. Um, and, um, and one of the things that, I mean, this isn't, I don't know if this is an advice, it might be a request to young women, but, you know, some of the, the, the differences that I observe in the workplace is, you know, use, and this is this podcast is a great example of that, is, you know, um, form girls clubs. You know, yep. use your, your, your girl connections and, and um, be supportive with each other. It's something that I think women in the workplace tend to shy away from, um, but I absolutely believe it's something that we need to learn to get better at um, and help each other along, along the way. Um, I, I know whenever I, I actually had to do something for a publication when I had five women in digital around the table and it was just absolutely fantastic and we, you know, are going to keep in touch and make sure that we offer support to each other and mentorship and that kind of thing. So that's, that's a request. 
So and if you've got the opportunity to form a girls' club, do it. I think that is not only a request, but terrific advice. And I, I feel so lucky to have had you on the show today. It's such a great example of incredible brands doing great things and showing how social can really not only uh, be great from a community perspective, but also be measured and have great results. And, and I feel very lucky to have you on, Sonia. So thank oh, you so pleasure. much. Thank you so much. And so tell me, where can people follow you? Where should they follow you? Where can they learn from you? <laughs> well, it's a funny and slightly embarrassing thing. So I uh, I only recently started, I guess, tweeting professionally, okay. if one can say that, because it was very good being a lurker. I love being a lurker. <laughs> Lurker's great. Watching what, what was going on. And actually, um, it, it, it's a strange thing. Sometimes in digital, you feel like because you work in digital, you have to have the latest gadgets. Yeah. You have to be on digital 24-7. And, and I actually think, I don't mind that it's not my first instinct. I'm not an early adopter. And actually, I think sometimes that gives me a bit of an edge because I can be quite cynical. But I am on Twitter. I've got a funny name, though, because I joined such a long time ago. I'm when so I never, excited. I can't wait for it. Years, I, I can't wait. Giving the, the handle out. But it is, so it's Lottie Gal, which is L-O-T-T-E-G-A-L. I love that. I don't think that so it's... it's a little, I, but I can't say that you have... I, I, I now feel compelled. I'm going to have to go and be wise. Yes, you're going to immediately have to start tweeting out brilliant pieces of advice. Well, I'll tell you one thing. <laughs> we will make you some of your best advice that you gave on the show. We'll turn it into some beautiful imagery and we can broadcast it out because it really were some, <laughs> some beautiful pearls of wisdom and I'm so excited to have you on the show today. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me so much. You've been listening to All the Social Ladies with Carrie Kerfin, CEO of Likeable Media. You can follow Carrie on Twitter, at Carrie Kerfin. To get current social media insights and great tips, sign up for Carrie's weekly newsletter by emailing newsletter at likeable.com.